Alright, eight. Yeah, could you pull that could you pull that door shut for me, please, if little guys left open? Thank you very much. Alright, we're going to continue today with our study in the Gospel of Mark, taking a section at a time as we have been doing for uh, for many, many weeks now. This is actually number twenty in our in our series on the Gospel of Mark, and we're just starting chapter five today, so uh, so we will be in Mark for a good while. Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, we're going to read today this entire story, this entire section, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of, of the Gadarenes, and when he had come out of the boat, this is of course the Lord Jesus, you remember from last week, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, day and night, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about two thousand, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. There is nothing quite like this recorded in the ministry of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, and nothing this significant that we know about that had occurred since God himself threw Satan out of heaven, along with all of the rebellious angels who followed him. Although there is no direct statement about this in the scripture, many Bible students put together clues 
from several passages, particularly in Revelation 12, that indicate that one-third of the angels of heaven followed Satan in his rebellion against God. And Satan and those rebelling angels were cast out of heaven in one sweeping act of God's power. But there was no display of God's power over demons quite like that until we read this event in the Gospels. This is recorded not only in Mark, it's also in Matthew and Luke. And there won't be another display, I think, quite like this of of God's dominance over demons that we are aware of until the time of the tribulation comes to an end when Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom and binds Satan for a period of a thousand years and we presume his demons along with him and then throws them into the lake of fire at the final judgment. So this this is quite a unique event. Whether it's casting Satan and his rebellious angels out of heaven, or casting them into the bottomless pit, or the abyss as it's often called, or in the lake of fire, or here casting thousands of demons out of one man, this is, of course, the absolute power of God on display. This is one of the most extreme encounters with the powers of supernatural wickedness anywhere in the Scripture. Although the Lord Jesus throughout His ministry has overpowered demons on many occasions, this display was particularly overwhelming because He is declaring that He is the promised Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, God who took on human form, God the Son, as we have said in past weeks, who has taken upon himself all the limitations of a human body in order to become our Savior. We have said in past studies of Mark's Gospel that if Jesus is the true Messiah, if he's truly the Lord of Heaven come down, then he must be able to conquer Satan or he cannot bring in the everlasting kingdom. He must also have power over the natural world, over the physical world, because the promise of the Old Testament prophets is that the Messiah is going to come and restore the earth. You've probably heard many of these prophecies. The lion will lie down with the lamb, the desert will bloom like a rose, and so forth. And during the thousand-year reign of the Messiah from Jerusalem, there will be a restored, restructured earth that will have similar conditions to the Garden of Eden. So if Jesus Christ cannot control nature, and if he cannot control the spirit world and all of those things, then how could he possibly bring in the everlasting kingdom? So did Jesus demonstrate power over nature? Well, absolutely he did. We just saw last week how he controlled the wind and the waves with a spoken word. He literally turned off millions of horsepower of wind energy in the snap of a finger with a word of rebuke. Does he have power over every human ailment, every human disease, every deformity, even death itself? Yes, he does. He has the power to do that. We've already seen that in the earlier chapters of Mark. Does he have the power to transform people's lives? He certainly has demonstrated that again and again and again. Jesus Christ can overcome everything. And during his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus is literally reversing the effects of the curse of sin for a period of time in order to prove who he is. He has all the power and authority that is required to establish his everlasting kingdom. And as part of that, He has demonstrated his power over Satan and over his demonic army in a way that has no other parallel in the Gospels. His divine power totally dominates thousands of demons with a verbal command. 
Before we dive into some of the details of this fascinating event, I want to read with you today a short passage in 1 John chapter 3. If you would turn there, please. 1 John chapter 3. A great truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and His earthly ministry. 1 John chapter 3. Just like to read one section, verses 4 through 9. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that He, meaning Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. And in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, meaning God's seed, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God." I'm not going to run a long rabbit trail in all of the theology in this passage, but this passage, as you may know, has been a source of contention and debate for a long time regarding the doctrine of eternal security. So I must say, just briefly, that the key to understanding this passage is in the tense of the verb sin. The verb tense in the original language of the New Testament very clearly indicates habitual sin, a lifestyle of sin, no struggle against it, no repentance from it, no confession of it. And John is saying that you cannot live a lifestyle of sin if you truly know the Lord. If you can live in open sin and it never bothers you, John says you are not truly born again. You may struggle, you may stumble, but if you truly know Jesus Christ, you will repent and return to the Lord, as we see most notably, we mentioned in past weeks, in the lives of King David and the Apostle Peter. But we see two very important themes in this passage that apply to our text in Mark. We see that Jesus came for two reasons. That passage tells us in 1 John. He came, first of all, to take away our sin, John says. And then secondly, he says, he was manifested or revealed to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy meaning to undo, to annihilate, to obliterate the works of the devil, meaning his actions, their effects, all of the impact of that. So, so John says that Jesus Christ came both to take away our sin and to destroy the works of the devil. That's what he's in the process of doing in Mark 5. In fact, that's why Jesus in John twelve thirty one he said, The ruler of this world is cast out. John sixteen eleven Jesus said, The ruler of this world is judged because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil and he is in the process of openly doing that in our text this morning. I know we all have friends and possibly family members who are involved in churches and denominations or certain religious beliefs who get very preoccupied with the spirit world and demons. And I must say that the God of this world, Satan, does continue his reign of temptation and deception among the unbelieving world. But let me share with you my convictions, which I believe are rooted in the New Testament, regarding the casting out of demons and demonic activity in general. 
first of all this, Jesus obviously, we just read it in Mark 5, Jesus obviously had absolute power over demons during his earthly ministry. And it's, it's all over the Gospels. Every time Jesus Christ confronted a demon, he cast him out. He had absolute power over demons. He imparted that power, according to Matthew 10, he imparted that power to the twelve apostles as his representatives. They used that authority on occasion during their ministries. Three times in the book of Acts. Once in chapter 5, once in chapter 8, once in chapter 16, some of the apostles used that demon casting out authority, and they cast demons out of people as well. But by the time the book of Hebrews was written, several decades after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus back to heaven, the signs of an apostle, according to Hebrews 2, they were already being spoken of in the past tense. And this notion that believers today have apostolic-like power to, to, to exercise demons, to cast out demons, is an absolute myth. There, there is no direct statement or even a slight implication in the epistles of Paul that, that indicate that we have that kind of power, or, nor was there ever given any instruction as to what to do with it if we did. The idea that so many of our friends and people we know think that they can, they can kind of command Satan, or, or they can command demons. It's absolute foolishness. Even Michael the archangel would not attempt to do so on his own. The book of Jude says when Michael the archangel was, was battling against the devil for the body of Moses, he didn't even rebuke him. He said, the Lord rebuke you. I want you to look for a second Acts chapter 19. Interesting passage. Acts chapter 19. And let's begin to read in verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, the Jewish men who tried to cast out demons, took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise, that means to, to draw them out, to throw them out, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Kind of a stupid attempt, huh? Uh, we, we, ex we throw you out by the Jesus that Paul talks about. They didn't even believe in him. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief, chief priest, who did so. And look at verse 15. I, this, I love this. The evil spirit, the evil, the demon answers and said to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Pause there for just a second. I think so many times some of our friends, and I know they're well-meaning, I know they really want to try to do the right thing, but they are so misguided in all of this. They're going around trying to command the devil to do this and command the devil to do that. And, and the devil probably looks at that and says, I know who Jesus is, but who are you? 
And what do you think gives you the right to tell me what to do? Well, they say, well, we claim the authority of Jesus. Jesus didn't give you that authority. He gave it to the apostles. He didn't give us the authority to cast out demons. You cannot find one single place in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus Christ gave demon casting out power to anybody but his apostles. And in, in, in this case, we see it. The, the demon says, oh, I know who Jesus is. I know who the apostle Paul is, but I don't know who you are. I'll just beat the daylights out of you. And that's what he did. But look at verse 19. Verse 17, rather. This became known to the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. They'd been involved in spirit worship. They'd been involved in demonic stuff. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them in a total of 50,000 pieces of silver, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Very fascinating teachings for us here in this way. How are you and I to be on guard for the devil's attacks? How can we do that? There are three things that the Bible tells us to do that we do have instruction to do from the Scripture. The first thing, the book James 4, 7, 1 Peter 5, 9, they all say, resist the devil. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says to stand against the wiles of the devil. Take a stand against him. And he describes in Ephesians 6, uh, there you live a holy life armed with the scriptures and you stand against the devil. And then we saw this passage we just read in Acts chapter 19. What did those people do when they had come to Christ? They gathered up all of their stuff that had demonic connections. All their magic books, all their this and that, they put them in a big pile and they made a bonfire out of it and they burned them all. Which I deduce from that that they remove, to remove Satan's influences from your life and your home. You want to fight against the devil? Resist him, stand against him, and remove his influences from your life and your home. Be careful what the DVDs are you got stored in your cabinet somewhere. Be careful of the stuff that you watch. Be careful of the music that you listen to. Be careful of the things that you read. Be careful of the places that you go. Remove Satan's influences from your life and your home. If you resist him, if you stand against him, if you remove his influences from your life and home, you will have gone a long, long way toward defeating the influences of, 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 of demonic stuff in your life. Now, is there demonic stuff around us? You better believe there is. I know for many years, some people had believed that, well, in this uh, modern, educated, uh, philosophical, enlightened age, that, that all this demon stuff is just sort of old-fashioned superstition. I, I do not believe that. I believe it's very real. And I could tell you many stories, and many of you who've lived around here all your lives could tell me many stories, some of you have, of all sorts of things that have happened that there's no other explanation for other than demonic influence. It's all around us. But God never gave us in the New Testament or the Old Testament instructions on how we are supposed to go about uh, commanding Satan to do this and that. Jesus can. He's, he's, he created him. 
He created these demons. They're fallen angels. He can command them to do whatever He wants them to do. And He gave that authority to a certain extent to His apostles. He did not give it to us. Having that as a background, with that context now, I want to look at some details in our text. So back to Mark chapter 5. we got five players in this story. You've got the demon-possessed maniac, as we'll call him. you got the actual demons. you got the pigs. you got the local response of the people in the area. And of course you have the Lord Jesus Christ. And putting together all of the details from Matthew, Mark, and Luke read all of those stories this week as I was studying for the, the message today, we see that this demon-possessed maniac, several things about him, Mark doesn't mention it here, but Luke does, says he was roaming around naked. He wore no clothing at all. He, he was totally uncontrollable. We see that from our text. He could not be restrained. Even when they tied him up with chains and shackles, he would break them with supernatural power. He was cutting himself with stones. He was screaming out night and day, and he lived in a cemetery. We won't spend a lot of time with this, but it is interesting that these things are connected with demonic activity. Being unclothed in public, not simply the idea of public nudity, but also the idea of no protection from all the forces of the weather. But being unclothed in public, hurting yourself intentionally, having a preoccupation with death and the dead, being completely uncontrollable, totally hyper, running around in the mountains and in the cemetery, screaming out and cutting yourself. One can't help but think of the words of the Lord Jesus in John 10 about the thief coming to steal and to kill and to destroy. That is the work of demons. Destroy, destroy, destroy. And this poor man... possessed by apparently thousands of demons, who is cutting himself and screaming out night and day and running around naked in cemeteries and, 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 and nobody could even begin to try to control him. And notice again, if you would with me, that, that the demons in our text here, they immediately recognize Jesus. They saw him from afar, the text says in verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. He fell down at his feet, other gospels say, pleading for mercy, identifying him as the Son of the Most High God. And it is quite amazing that when Jesus asks the name of the demons, he says, Legion, for we are many. Legion is a Latin word that referred to a group of military men that could number up to as many as 6,000. So apparently this man's body was possessed by thousands of demons. It's actually, it's actually quite, a, quite a horrifying thought. And don't miss that they are asking Jesus to not torment them. Matthew says the demons asked Jesus if he was going to torment them before the time. Very interesting. Their, their eschatology seems to be right on track. Uh, apparently they know when judgment is coming for them. Luke records that they asked Jesus not to send them into the abyss. The bottomless pit, it's often translated. That happens at the end of the tribulation. So we see the demons, they have the right theology. They know exactly who Jesus is. They seem to understand eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. They know their destiny, and they seem to know when judgment is coming for them. And and that's what leads to the question, what have I to do with you, they said. 
I mean, why, why are you coming here now, Jesus? Are you coming to torment us now? You see, they, they, I believe, understand that their judgment was connected to Jesus' second coming, not his first coming. They seem to know that. Well, why are you here right now, they're asking Jesus. Don't torment us. Don't, don't torture us. This is not the time yet. You see, demons are liars and deceivers and merciless destroyers. Not because they don't know the truth, but because they have rebelled against their Creator, even though they're still subject to Him. That's why James wrote in James 2.19, Do you believe in one God? He said, You do well. But the demons believe that, and they tremble, which we see them doing right here. So the demons plead with Jesus to let them go into a nearby herd of pigs, about 2,000 of them, which just gives us a little clue as to how many demons possibly were possessing this man. Jesus allows them to do so. Uh, there are several interesting implications of all this. This is an area uh, that is predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish. So to have a, a herd of pigs this large would be, would be obviously in a Gentile area as they were unclean animals under the law of Moses. So one wonders if the demon-possessed maniac maybe was also a Gentile. That's a possibility. That would make this whole event an incredible act of grace and mercy on the part of the Lord Jesus. He is presenting the gospel of the kingdom to the nation of Israel. And he sails all the way across the Sea of Galilee to rescue one Gentile from demon possession. And according to the gospel record, he never returns to that specific area again. So this entire trip across the lake, the entire storm experience that we studied last week, was all, I believe, for the purpose of rescuing this one man, probably Gentile. What a beautiful picture of the grace of God. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one is too far gone for God to rescue if He so chooses. It's a beautiful thought. You know, there's no mention of the owner of the pigs, just those who were feeding them. No mention of the huge financial loss, 2,000 pigs worth a lot of money. In my reading this week, I came across a few fellows who were making jokes about the pigs. I've never been very good at inserting, inserting much humor in my sermons, probably because I tend to be serious most of the time, uh, so my occasional attempts at, at humor often fall flat. But one fellow said, I'll just tell you what they said, one fellow said this was the first mention of deviled ham. <laughs> Another guy said the pigs ran to the Sea of Galilee and took a swine dive. Another said that the pigs were committing suicide. Now that I've told you that, that's probably what you're going to remember from the sermon. But there is a very interesting fact, okay? Pigs can swim. From birth, they can naturally swim quite well, so I read. So there is no reason why they should drown unless the demons actually drown them. Once again, destroy, 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 destroy. That is job one for the forces of hell. But look at the local response. Nobody expresses anger over the pigs being drowned. Nobody expresses joy about this demon-possessed maniac being rescued. 
that they'd gone to great effects to try to subdue him, chaining him up repeatedly. He always broke the chains, but that, but that doesn't seem to be an issue with him. The, the issue of the maniac now being subdued and the issue of the pigs being drowned doesn't even seem to be the issue. It says in verse 15, they see him, he's clothed now, he's sitting down, and he's in his right mind. And look at their response. They became frightened. Scared the daylights out of them. Kind of strange, wouldn't you think? I mean, they, they used to be frightened. They wouldn't come near this guy without being frightened. I mean, he's scaring everybody to death. He was so violent, he was terrifying everyone. Now, now he's clothed, and now he's sitting down, now he's thinking clearly. This, this transformation is absolutely total. He's now harmless. He's not dangerous. He's quiet. He's not screaming. He's among the living. He's not among the dead. He's peaceful. He's not tormented. And now they're scared. Why? Because they're frightened of Jesus. Interesting, this is the same expression that's used to describe the disciples in the boat that we looked at last week. After Jesus calmed the storm, this phobeo megas, we call it a megaphobia. It means to be terrified because now they realize they are in the presence of of a spiritual, supernatural power greater than anything they have ever experienced, and it scares them to death. So they start pleading with Jesus to leave. But think about that. They start asking Him to leave. Verse 17, they begin to plead with Him to depart from their region. Very strange, until you understand the binding and blinding power of the sinful heart. You know, this, this man who has terrorized their area for who knows how long, screaming and running around all hours of the day and night, naked and cutting himself blood, b- bloody and breaking every chain they used to try to restrain him. He gets rescued and healed and restored, and then they want the guy who, who performed the miracle to leave. And I guess I say, very unusual, unless you understand the binding and blinding power of the sinful heart. Because most of us would like to believe that this kind of miracle would cause a revival. We'd like to read that the whole town said, Sir, we don't know who you are. By the way, what's your name? Could you tell us who you are and where you came from? And by the way, can you deliver all the rest of us from the powers of Satan? Can you deliver all the rest of us from the power of darkness? Can you change us? Can you transform me like you just transformed him? What is your message? What kind of person are you? Where did you come from? Tell us. We've seen your power. We want to know your power in the way this man has experienced your power. We want to know what this transforming power is. We would like to think that a miracle on that scale would be very convincing. But of course, that's not how they respond. They ask Jesus to leave because they are more afraid that God might be in their presence than they are that Satan's in their presence. They are apparently more comfortable with the demonic presence than they are with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, that is the nature of the sinful heart. It is more comfortable for a sinful heart to be in the presence of sin and sinners than it is to be in the presence of righteousness. 
You can perform an amazing miracle, and that miracle with all of its power cannot overcome unbelief. It cannot change the heart. Miracles do not produce saving faith. I have preached this to you in various, from various texts in the New Testament many, many times. Miracles do not produce saving faith. Many people have said, you know, if I, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. And I want to tell no, you won't. Miracles don't produce saving faith. If I could just see God really do something dynamic, I would believe. No, 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 you wouldn't. You might be moved and excited and impressed and interested, but miracles don't produce saving faith. Miracles will not break a hard heart, as the whole life and ministry of Jesus proves. There, there has to be another miracle. And that is the miracle of God opening our eyes to see the truth and giving us the faith to believe. So Jesus responds to their request. He left. He never returned to that particular place. But he did go into into Gentile territory a little bit later on. We'll see that in just a minute. But he left. He got in the boat and he left. And what an opportunity that was lost because of the blinding power of sin. On the other hand, the man who was delivered, he wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to become a disciple. He says here, verse 18, when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Begged him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Decapolis was an area, Deca means ten, Polis means city. It was an area of ten cities, uh, a little ten little towns that was a predominantly Gentile area. And so he goes to all these ten little towns, to, tells, tells people about his life. He didn't want to live another day without Jesus. But Jesus says, go home to your people and report to them what the Lord's done for you and how he had mercy on you. Can you imagine a guy's testimony like that? Going around telling people, hey, I used to be a naked, demon-possessed maniac, cutting myself and roaming around, screaming all hours of the day and night and living in cemeteries. Look at me now. Jesus Christ changed my life. What does it take for you to be able to witness for Christ? The only thing it takes is the fact that he's worked in your life. That's all this guy had. All he had was the knowledge of what Jesus Christ had done for him. Verse 20 says he went away, he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. Did his testimony have an effect on anybody? Turn just a couple pages over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, look down to verse 31. It says, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, this is Jesus leaving Tyre and Sidon out on the coast, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis, there it is again, to the Sea of Galilee, the region of Decapolis. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on them. They say, wait a minute, Jesus never been there before. He's just traveling through Decapolis. Why would they bring him somebody who was deaf? He'd never been there before, but somebody had. A demon-possessed maniac who had been delivered by the Lord Jesus. 
a demon-possessed maniac who became a missionary by the grace of God, telling everybody what Jesus had done for him. And so several months later, Jesus shows up and just traveling through Decapolis. I was like, hey, there he is. There's that guy that demon-possessed maniac was talking about. That's him. Go get somebody and get, see if we can get him healed. It's amazing. A demon-possessed maniac who turned into a missionary by the grace of God because he was telling everybody what Jesus had done for him. That's all you need to do to witness. You may not, I can't remember verses. Okay, tell people what Jesus has done for you. Find some verses. I'll help you find some verses. Other people can help you find some verses. But tell people what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's all this guy had. And it had an effect. Can't help but think of amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. That was the testimony of this man. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful and amazing demonstration of your awesome, awesome abilities. We're just reminded again, Lord, of who you are, what you are, what you came to do. You came not only to take away our sin, you came to destroy, literally destroy, to obliterate the works of the devil. And with a spoken word of command, you wrenched from the body of this poor, wretched man, Thousands of demons, just with a command. Lord, forgive us for having too small a view of who you are. Forgive us, Lord, for being afraid of the world, being afraid of what the world thinks and what the world's going to say and what the world's going to do. Help us, Lord, to stand firmly for the Lord Jesus Christ and never be ashamed. The gospel of Christ, as we know, as Paul so powerfully wrote, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. What an amazing picture of the grace of God in the life of this man. Lord, may we be what you want us to be. May we do what you want us to do. May we witness to those that you lay on our hearts. Use our testimony of your grace in our lives to touch many people for the Lord Jesus. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank you.